Hello, everybody. Welcome to Guys 5 Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. You are listening to episode 132. We are covering the top five films of 1991. And as we decided in previous weeks, we're not necessarily ranking or ordering these lists whatsoever. Frank's just going to be discussing the top five movies of that year in any order he wishes. Mm. So, you know what? you know what you never do frank i never like check in like bledsoe does this all the time on our like uh i guess like kind of like sister podcast or whatever it is like or brother podcast i don't know like uh, uh best 30 minutes but bledsoe always checks in, checks checks in see how everybody's doing like, how, how are you doing frank i don't know i'm fine <laughs> it was a long week at work i didn't go and get cigarettes today because i overslept and then i was lazy and just wanted to come home after work so i'm testy you look testy like i because i can actually see you and the audience cannot i can see it's it feels like you're like your shoulders are like like moved in a little bit like you're like you're, like you're getting ready to like just kind of like explode no i'm fine i mean i'm i'm, I'm just sitting i don't know I mean, it, it could be like the brian de palma dutch angle that like you know like the whole thing is at right now like always like it's also my, it's also my classy vest it could be maybe it's the vest is like yeah like making you feel like you're expanding making my shoulders pop <laughs> do you remember I, I guess, do, do, I don't know. Do, do you remember the time one of the times i tried to quit smoking and you just got out of the car at dunkin donuts and walked over to the wawa and came back and threw a fucking pack of cigarettes at me and told me to smoke a fucking cigarette i kind of do remember that always 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 kind of appreciated that because it's like i guess i must have as hateful and moody as i am i must have been really bad that night for you to do that so yeah probably (laughs) i um i have no one to throw a pack of cigarettes at me until i throw a pack of cigarettes at myself yeah tomorrow when i decide to go get them yeah instacart can't take care of that for you Nah, they won't deliver them man it's fucked up actually Yeah, get get some get, ever, some get some beer and some cigarettes. No, they, no one delivers beer. Oh, they deliver liquor. No, they won't do that anymore either because the people that were doing it were doing it illegally. Mm. There is no liquor delivery service, unfortunately, that I know of. I mean, unless I'm missing something. Hmm. Let's check the things and see if they're back up. But even they won't deliver cigarettes; they'll just deliver you um booze. Yeah, which mind you because because cigarettes and booze would feel very much like 1991 for some reason that's a very 90s thing let me see if this works i'm actually getting excited because it's doing a different thing than it was before it's doing the thing (laughs) no it's it's just in-store pickup it's fucked up yeah, that is fucked up. That's real fucked up. Got your hopes up. Yeah. All right. So you had a bunch of movies on this 91 list that you had considered before yeah. you chose your top five. So I'm going to just go through an order real quick and uh, you can testily give me some <laughs> um, short comments like whatever. I started, I'm started drinking, Frank. I'm just going to make those jokes all night now. So... <clears throat> Barton Fink is the first one you had. 
Um, I find Barton Fink to be like a lesser Coen Brothers movie, even though I enjoy it. I don't enjoy it as much as some other Coen. So they got, they got left off. Uh, Black Robe. I don't know. This um, movie, so it could be the Black Robe. It is the Black Robe. Mm-hmm. It's um period piece set in uh, the northern part of New York State, I think, or maybe like somewhere in Canada. Um, it's about a kind of like the priest and I don't know. I mean, it's a really pretty movie, but it's not like necessarily anything enjoyable to talk about. Okay. Uh, Boys in the Hood. I just don't think Boys in the Hood is one of the five best movies of that year. I like it, but I mean, I don't like it as much maybe as other people or that I should. I don't know. Cape Fear. Uh, Cape Fear, I'm saving for something else, I think. Gotcha. The Fisher King? I really struggled with this because I really wanted to put Fisher King on here because I love Fisher King, but I think that's another movie that belongs on another list, and I don't think it's as good as the five movies on this list. So that's the problem is that the five movies on this list are all five movies that I love like quite a bit, so it's hard for anything to compete with them. Yeah, here's one I was surprised when I saw that you had on your shirt list that it did not make the list for some reason, which is L.A. Story. You were surprised it didn't make the list? Yeah. Yeah, I really like L.A. Story a lot. Yeah, I know. Uh, it'll be on a 90s comedy list someday. Gotcha. It's more suited for that. Yeah, I think you've always undersold how much you love L.A. Story. Like you get like a, it's, you get like a gleam in your eye, like when you every the few times L.A. Story has ever come up, like. <sighs> It's one of my favorite, like, low-key romantic comedies. Yeah. And I think it's my favorite um, Steve Martin performance ever. So, <laughs> interesting. Cool. Um, my Own Private Idaho? Um, it's a really good movie. I just don't know how much I want to, like, I would want to talk about it. Gotcha. I don't know. Uh, the, naked, the, the Naked Lunch? I think that belongs on a different list. Prospero's books. Do you know this movie? I do not. This is Peter Greenaway's adaptation of The Tempest. Okay. Um, but told with like a, like a queer mindset, I guess, sort of. Hmm. Um, it's visually stunning, but it's The Tempest. So like, what are you going to say? I don't know. It might be on like, maybe if we ever do... Um, most innovative Shakespeare adaptations or something. Hmm. That's interesting. Which yeah. maybe in the next couple of years with some stuff that's coming out that might be a that might be a possibility. Sure. Until the end of the world. Also I don't know this movie, I don't think. This is um Vim Vendors, I think. Okay. Um I don't know. There's just not much to say about it. Okay. <clears throat> Pretty sure it's Vim Vendors. Uh, what about Bob? We already talked about what about Bob enough. Okay. And then you had a uh, incident last minor, night. Minor fuck up. Where you watch La, La Belle Noisus, um, which is how long? Uh, three hours and 58 minutes. Okay. Because you thought it was in your top five list. <laughs> I had it marked on, in my phone on my top five list. And I had one of the top five movies not marked and i when i started this fucking movie last night 
I was looking at this list and I was like, man, why didn't I pick this movie? I really love this other movie. And it turned out that I did. And I didn't realize it until whatever, three hours and 20 minutes in when I texted you like, yeah, he's so man, eight, 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 eight last night. Frank texts, how many sittings did it take you for you to watch La Belle Noisseuse for? And I said, wait, what movie? And the response is, what are the five 1991 movies? <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, you watched it. So tell us a little bit about it. Look, I love them. I, I don't love it. It's There was eventually a recut version of this movie released um, called La Belle Noisseuse, the something edition. Um, that's only two hours long that I wish I could find to watch because I think that would be a perfect movie. Um, it's a really interesting um, shit. What's his name? Res Resnace or something. Uh, I can't remember the director's name. I'm going to look this shit up. Rivet, Jacques Rivet. So Jacques Rivet was like one of the originators of the French New Wave. Um, he worked for uh, Cahiers du Cinema, or however you say that magazine's name. Okay. Um, as a critic and a tastemaker, and eventually, like, was making his own movies and was super influential on people like um, Godard and Truffaut. Um, so, really, like, I mean, I hate to use the word titan, but like a titan of French cinema for decades, but notorious for making movies that were like long movies. And in fact, if you look at his filmography, where most people just have like directing credit and like, you know, did they write it? Did they produce it? This has a very specific column that's like running time, just so you can see. Um, he has a movie called Once, maybe it's called or something like that. That's 13 hours long and has like almost never been screened in the world. Right. Um, I've never seen it because I am not watching a fucking 13 hour long movie. I have trouble watching a 13 hour long series over the course of like several days, let alone, you know, right. A 13 hour long movie. Um, but it stars Jane Birkin, Emmanuel Bear. Um, it's almost like a unofficial passing of the torch many years after the fact between Birkin, who was kind of an it girl in the 60s in French cinema. Um, you know Jane Birkin from a lot of things, but like she's the blonde in um blow up mm. that um yep what's his name Hemings is um involved with. Um so Birkin was like this beautiful, like I don't know, symbol of femininity in the sixties. And Bayar was kind of that in the late eighties, early nineties in French cinema. Um real early nineties more, just like an ephemeral like beauty. So it's also an interesting meditation on art and the idea of the artist eye and what what is beauty and what stimulates like creativity and I don't know it's like a meditation on love but it's all very slow and very methodical and very 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 um demanding in terms of like sitting there and watching and straight through mm -hmm. But it also is kind of lulls you a little bit. Like, you'll sit there and watch it, and there's a lot of scenes that's just... Emmanuel Bayard is naked for three hours of this movie, without exaggeration. And it's okay. him 
it's weird because like she's an incredibly attractive woman but she becomes almost scenery or a prop because of the way she's treated by um, Michael Piccoli who plays this aging artist who's inspired by her to paint again he's a guy that hasn't painted for like decades and he's inspired by her to paint but he's just like positioning her like an artist mannequin Mm -hmm. and then painting her and there's there's no it it's crazy because for as beautiful as she is it removes like any eroticism from it right and almost makes it procedural and it's just a really interesting look at like that but much more interesting if it was only two hours long so gotcha yeah we know so well he was um Buñuel is like one of his main actors, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and you can just see, like, I don't know. There, there's just a way that old French men carry themselves. That's and Italian men, like, like, like when you see like those romance country Europeans, like in their their elder state, the way they move their bodies, they just kind of feel like it's <laughs> gonna sound I don't know, racist, probably not racist, like old soft shoes to me or something. Like, it's just, like, folds of skin, like, flopping, and, mm-hmm. like, nothing seems to have any, like, bone structure to it. Um, this fascinating movie. It's beautiful. Like, it's incredibly, like, well shot. And just for being a movie about nothing, really, because he truly, uh, Rivette truly was, like, one of the major proponents of the we-don't-need-no-plot-here um, cinema. So still a fascinating watch and bear bear is just amazingly attractive and birkin is still really attractive even at i don't know i think she was in her 50s or 60s maybe when she filmed it but there's um just a real deep sense of like love and longing and loss and i don't know it's it's a very very meandering thoughtful summer afternoon like daydream kind of movie i guess i don't know yes made me really sleepy I mean, you would, I'm telling you, it would take you four or five times to, to right. finish this movie. And you would text me the entire time about how much you hated me. I, um, I watched a movie from a January list today that's two hours exactly. And, uh, I, it took me like five or six, probably like sittings almost to like get through that. Was it the Antonioni list? Yeah. I'm telling you, you got, you got, you got, you got, you got no fucking art, got no soul. But I tell you, you don't have, you don't have poetry, poetry in your heart, man. Poetry in my heart, right? Yeah, right. I don't have it. Well, that's what you told me earlier. I stand by it. We're going. We're going. We're going. We're going to prove it out. All right. Um. All right. Hopefully, I don't make you too angry. <laughs> You're gonna make me angry. You're angry in your own heart, buddy. <laughs> I got. I got. I got love in me. Oh, you just don't know where to put it. Oh, I, I know where to put it, unfortunately. <laughs> all right you want to get started yeah let's go all right so the first movie we're going to talk about tonight on your top five list is alan parker's the commitments stars robert arkins johnny murphy angeline ball maria doyle kennedy it has an 89 percent from critics and 90 percent from audiences you want to tell us a little bit about this and why it made your top five so based on a novel by roddy doyle uh one of my favorite authors from the late 80s early 90s mid 90s um i really like most of his novels it follows jimmy rabbit who's a kind of prodigal son returned home who has this idea that he's going to form a musical band um and 
be a producer, be a manager. So he discovers that his his feeling is that he wants to have soul music as the the music of the people. That it's it's about sex and it's about labor and it's about blue collar working class feelings and emotions. And it's something that's underrepresented by at the time that this movie takes place, the state of pop music and I guess what you would call like proto alternative music and the eighties music and disco. And he wants to bring everything back to this really deep soul music from the seventies. So like Wilson Pickett and uh, the four tops and whatnot. So he collects a group of people from around uh, Barrytown, which is a section of Dublin that he lives in. And they're a bunch of disparate kind of, outlier musician sort of um their singer is this guy that he sees singing drunk at a wedding uh deco who's a complete asshole the two the rhythm guitarist and the bass player are both members of a, the wedding singer band that's there he finds a guy that's going to be a doctor to be his piano player basically he just assembles this whole group uh, these two women because he's has the hots for this or he finds this one woman really attractive so he gets two of their friends and they don't go to high school together and they become the the backup singers well even like the f- forefront singers whatever main singers at certain points uh, all ball all pulled together by this guy who uh paul who's purports to have played with everybody um hendrix uh, any major artist that would have come through uh, Ireland, he says that he's played with. He's been on tour with people. Uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins, I think, is the one person he says, or somebody else that I wasn't really familiar with anyway. So despite their differences, they start to become successful. They play this really uh, authentic brand of soul music. Uh, they are incredibly popular at a a church event to i don't know protest heroin use all the while kind of falling apart uh, till the end where um, and his name's not paul what is that dude's name is it paul did i fuck that up which character are you talking about at this point the trumpet player oh jesus what is his name it's not paul Brother Rabbit. How did I delete that? I'm fucking up. You're looking for cigarettes. I wasn't. They don't exist. (laughs) I mean, they do exist, but they don't exist here. (laughs) Dean. Oh, okay. Oh, Joey. Joey. Joey Fagan. Joey the Lips Fagan. So this guy, he starts sleeping with all three of the women in the band sequentially basically they fall apart under the auspice that wilson pickett is supposed to come and jam with them jimmy tells them that it's going to happen he doesn't show up there's a big fight they all kind of split up and then he pulls up in his limo afterwards showing that joey the lips was actually correct and then later Jimmy's whole shtick through the whole thing is him interviewing himself as if he's on tops of the pop top, top of the pops or whatever. And at the end, he gives you the coda basically to the movie of what's happening with everybody 
including the fact that he's now with one of the singers from the band who was kind of into him earlier. So, I mean, there's not like a whole lot of plot to it. It's really just a very, very much about this band and their short-lived tenure. The one thing, so there's a lot of stuff I love about this movie, and this is a movie that I don't even remember why I watched it as a kid, because it's not necessarily something that would have been my cup of tea and i saw this movie when i was probably 13 or 14 years old i think is that right probably 14 or 15 years old maybe because it was when it was out on vhs first Mm -hmm. i just love the the emotion and the power in the musical performances of this movie and the way that it feels authentic in that sense like all of these actors and most of them not any real fame outside of you know i guess they're probably local actors of some kind yeah um but just really great raw personal performances um the music in it is fantastic Uh, the performances are great it it's probably a little long in the tooth in that sense that they might cut like one or two performances out because when they play a song you hear the entire song played to its end uh, which the first time you see this movie, I think is a really great part of the movie because they're really wrapped up in the idea of this band being successful. But on subsequent viewings, some of that stuff cut out because it doesn't really have anything to do a lot of the times with the actual plot. It's just showing how good. And I think all these people play their own instruments. I know that um, he cast based on musical ability. <clears throat> so the guy that's the guitar player in this, uh, Glenn, Glenn Hansard, is the guy that starred in and helped write that once movie do you remember that movie yeah with the guy who joins up with the girl and they form like a duo and they record an album yeah 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 i remember yeah that. that's yeah. that's him so okay yeah now pretty much everybody in here could sing or play instruments they they pretty much cast for authenticity in that regard yeah, uh, yeah. so it's really good and it's just i really like working class irish movies for some reason there's an appeal there to me i kind of like seeing movies that are filmed in cities in ireland and a lot of places in europe because you have this crazy it's just crazy to look at a building that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old in some cases in these streets that are still paved with cobblestone or whatever in a movie set in the modern day like there's just something really romantic and interesting about that to me so um that's really it this is probably the nostalgia pick if anything of the podcast yeah i can see that maybe because how much i love it but i've seen this movie i don't know seven or eight times in my life and i enjoy it every single time i had a really good time watching it this time there's not much philosophical to talk about but again i think it's just a really solid well-performed movie with really great music if you enjoy soul music so yeah it's a it's a strange movie because you're right there isn't a lot to talk about with it i am not a fan of movies about music at all like this is not my cup of tea i largely avoid movies that have to do with music most of the time i think one they fall into too many tropes it's very much like my coming of age story problems is that I feel the tropes are too heavy and I'm just waiting for the next beat to happen 
And that being said, I watched this probably about 20 years ago. Uh, Chuck was a big fan of this and of Doyle and had me watch this probably maybe on Laserdisc even. And I really liked it. And I planned on never watching it ever again in my life. Not be, and then there's just some movies that are like that with me. I just, I liked it. Don't want to watch it again. And I watched this again and I still really enjoyed it. I think it's a really enjoyable, fun and funny movie about these people trying to form a band and watching what I assume is to some degree probably fairly realistic ways in which those things play out when some notoriety is starting to be gained and egos get in the way and relationships start forming. I mean, again, they're kind of tropey in some ways, those things, but I think they're done, not tongue in cheek, but with a air to authenticity and the movie itself is almost nostalgic in some ways. Sure. Agreed. It's almost like it's film. Parker's filming it as, and I've never thought about this because I haven't thought about this movie a lot. I just enjoy watching it, but it's almost like he's filming it in a way that it's looking back nostalgically at something. And I never read the novel, but is the novel kind of from that perspective? All of Roddy Doyle's books have a very, (sighs) I don't know how to explain it. Um, under the Greenwood tree-esque feel of like even if they're set in sort of the modern era they do kind of feel like a wistful look back but firmly planted in the reality of the situation Um, so this forms a trilogy of films along with the snapper which is comes after this and then the van which was a few years after the snapper uh, all movies that star in some way Cole Meany in a role well he um, does he still play the father in all those no he's a different character in each gotcha. movie okay um I don't remember if the rabbits are in any other of the movies one of them has deals with a sister doesn't it one it's not his sister it's different oh, okay sister. gotcha okay. sister of a different family okay who gets pregnant? Um, that's the snapper. That's like a slang term for a, a toddler, I guess, or an infant. Gotcha. Um, but they're all good movies, but I don't like any of them as much as I like the commitments. And I don't think any of them fills that level of like lived in realism. Mm-hmm. You know, of there's just something very like, I can't even think how to say it. It's just very personally familiar about watching the commitments especially the smaller moments that are in between the musical performances things in people's houses and in pubs and in restaurants and on the street it just it feels like these people know each other beyond just being actors in a movie and i i don't know i am a big fan of that so yeah and that's how doyle's novels are to answer your question yes they're they're very familiar very comfortable they read very colloquially you know it's not a lot of super rigid sentence structure it's much more conversational when you're reading his stuff Mm -hmm. so um i recommend him like i like roddy doyle quite a bit and i haven't read one of his books since 
shit, what's that book called? Patty something, haha, I guess is the last one I read, and that came right. out in uh, 98 or 99. Maybe it's been a long time since I've read it. So, okay, cool. But yeah, worth, worth, worth watching, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I enjoy it when I watch it, and I, I just don't have a lot to say after the fact about it, but I, I do enjoy it. Um, right, free you on YouTube. What? Yes, yes. If you find, yep, yeah, you can find it on YouTube. Because yeah, because it wasn't anywhere for us to watch except for YouTube. I think, if I remember correctly, that might be true. Yeah. Uh, yeah you know what? I don't want to deal with Owen Gleiberman this week. Fuck this dude. <clears throat> yeah, fuck him. What are we talking about next? <laughs> Second movie that we are going to talk about tonight is Mississippi Masala. It is directed by Mira Nair. It stars Denzel Washington, Sarita Chowdhury, Roshan Seth, Sharmila Tagore, and Charles S. Dudden. It has an 83% from critics and a 64% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this one and why it's on the list? A really young looking Charles S. Dutton, let's point out. Yeah, he is. I mean, this, I was, this is right I, around rock, right? Like I was staring at the dude and I was like, man, that guy looks a lot like Charles Dutton. Hmm. And then at one point he looked and I was like, oh shit, that is Charles Dutton. Yeah. So the movie the movie's kind of told in flashbacks in present day, but the flashbacks are really spread out. So it follows a family of Ugandans who are of Indian descent that are kicked out of Uganda during the rise of Idi Amin and are sent to basically exile and they move to America to live. So you get portions of the movie that are told from the perspective of the family while they're in Uganda and being expelled and then the majority of the movie takes place in the modern day at the time uh, in Mississippi at a hotel that's run by an Indian family where this expatriate family lives. So their daughter, who was four, I think they say, during the time of the exile, is now a 24-year-old woman, um, or I guess like 22-year-old woman, independent, but still living with her parents, kind of stuck through happenstance, she meets Denzel Washington's character, D. Demetrius, who owns his own carpet cleaning business, who's kind of a local celebrity slash legend for the young black kids in the neighborhood, because he's the guy that kind of brought himself up and holds himself to the size standard and has his own money. But they meet randomly at a club one night after she leaves a wedding with some guy, one of her, another Indian guy that's kind of in love with her, but she ditches him. And her and Demetrius slowly over time develop this flirtatious relationship and then fall in love with each other. Uh, this is to the dismay of both Demetrius's family and the black community and uh, Mina's, Mina, is that her name right? Mina's dismay. Yes, it's the, same, the, it's the same as director, yeah. Right, Mina's family's dismay at their daughter dating a black man and kind of bringing shame to the Indian community. So they're split apart at a certain point. Um, after they're caught in Biloxi by the guy that owns the hotel that Mina lives at. Um, and then through other various circumstances, they end up finding each other again and deciding to run away together and try to live a life where they're partners and 
she helps him with his carpet cleaning business, which was ruined by his affair with her, sort of. Um, I mean, it sounds like a really simple plot. There's a lot more complexity to it than that, especially yeah. in the sense of some of the major themes are, can you ever go home? Uh, what constitutes your home? Is there a racial barrier to people being in love with each other? Is it better to stay with your own kind, which is sort of preached by a lot of the older people in this movie, or does love not have any bounds? When is someone free to make their own choices in life and be their own person and move out from underneath the wings of their parents and their community? So I like Mina Nair quite a bit. I think she's a really talented director. Um, there's a couple other movies that she's done that are pretty high on my list of favorite movies of like specific decades. And I really love Mississippi Masala. Uh, I think Chowdhury does a fantastic job in the Mina role. Um, Denzel is just really impressive here for being young. And I guess that he had been in what, maybe like half a dozen movies at this point, maybe a dozen movies. Yeah. But I, he was, he was a coup for this production to get. I read yeah. Like he he was because he's just not long off of glory at this point in his life, right? So, and that was a Oscar win or nomination? I can't nomination. Remember. I think nomination. And um, so he's off the Mighty Quinn, Cry Freedom, Mighty Quinn, right? Mighty Quinn, and then Glory and Mo Better Blues was the year before this. So he really is not he's not Denzel yet fantastic performance here yeah um the right amount of it's interesting because usually when you would watch a movie like this and you have the young black man who's being discriminated against it's played a certain way i think and there's a lot of seething rage typically or mm -hmm. i don't know there's a lot of maturity to this performance by denzel and when i first saw this movie i was in love with uh chowdery Mm -hmm. um, I thought that she was amazing, um, but it's it's a very it's a very poignant tale, and it shows without beating you over the head that minds can be changed through circumstance and through the gr growing through the years. So one of the biggest subplots of the movie, or maybe the biggest subplot of the movie, is M Mina's father Jay is continuously suing Uganda to let him have his house back. Uh, 25 times he's presented suit to Uganda, and on the 25th time, he's finally granted an audience at court to hear his case. So you have this subplot through the whole movie where it's almost, it's almost an interesting parallel to Bernardo in um, West Side Story in the idea that someone who's a forced... Uh, immigrant to a country continuously railing against the idea of staying in that country even though they have some creature comforts there and wanting to go back to where they came from so i think jay though the interesting twist before we get to the end with him which is so powerful 
I think the interesting twist is while he kind of resents being in the United States, he also has a lot of resentment towards Uganda. Right, right, right. He has, well, he has resentment to the fact that he was expelled because of his, his, the color of his skin and the fact that someone told him that. Yes. Black Africans. Mm -hmm. Uganda is Africans for black Africans. Right. Right. Um, so and he carries that resentment. It's one of the reasons why he's opposed to the relationship sure. between right. Demetrius and, and Mina. So it's really an, an it's interesting because again, it's not your typical Romeo and Juliet where it's just this ogre of a father who refuses to see any sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has these really deep conflicting emotions and he feels like he's doing the right thing because of his past experiences in right. Uganda. And it's one of the best moments of the movie with him going back to his his home that he was, you know, removed from and seeing that it's kind of in ruins and just sort of slumping down on the ground and looking out over the landscape and realizing that what he loved about that home was his wife and his daughter and that that's what he needs. And then you sort of get this um, voice, you get, well, not sort of, you get a voiceover where his wife is reading a letter from him as he's in Uganda saying just that, that, you know, home is with her, his love is with her, and that's where he wants to be. And it's really just kind of a nice, because it doesn't give you a, it doesn't completely wrap up everything because you don't know if uh, Mina and Demetrius are successful. You don't know really what happened with, their family because they had been kicked out of the place where they were living but you see the joy in his heart of kind of knowing that he's made the right decision and still enjoying being back in his his home country of uganda so right and, and that last and you see him hold that black child which right. i think is like ultimately him accepting his daughter's choices and you know at least that point on that that family is going to be intact still right agreed and, and, and I it's, think that's a really powerful moment there at the end when he does that. And again, like done in a way where it's not beating you over the head with right. it or overt symbolism or huge amounts of narration. It just very subtly, calmly allows you to experience that moment and sort of feel it for yourself. And it's really him him taking the child and kind of bouncing it and like the music playing and the happiness on his face and the face of the people around him. It's just a really nice moment. Agreed. And he gives you hope that Mina and um, Demetrius are going to be going to be okay, even if you don't know for sure what the future holds for them. So. Right. Yeah. But really, really beautiful movie. Uh, it's her later stuff is much, much more sumptuous, I would say, in the way that it's filmed. But there's a hot stickiness to this movie taking place in Mississippi in the summer that you can feel it's very palpably humid almost when you're watching it mm-hmm. um and just really uh really an enjoyable film but it's also free on youtube to watch so well worth the two hour two hour runtime in my yeah. opinion yeah I, I don't think i have much more to add i i i found it really interesting you don't see a lot of movies that deal with the racism of skin tone that and I, I I always think that's really interesting. I don't know why exactly I find 
that idea so interesting, but I do. And you, you see it come up here and there, but you don't see it, I think, focused on as much as this movie. Sure. Um, as prominently. And, uh, and I think that's a fascinating concept. I think it's a fascinating concept because if you would have asked me, where is there a large Indian community at all in Uganda? I don't, I don't know that history. Like I, I had no idea, like, and then I researched it some and found out more about that. So, and I find, you know, experiences like, you know, uh, Indians living in America, which is a story you don't get to hear that often. I like seeing that as something different. And there's such a confluence of like all these different perspectives that you don't typically get. And I know I read that Nyers was like, they tried to get her to cast a white lead in the Denzel role. Like the backers really like was pressuring her to do that. And I think that would have been a huge mistake for this movie. And, right. Well, yeah, and it's so. interesting because I don't think the movie works without mm-hmm. a black lead, um, and mostly because of the scene with uh, man, I can't remember their names. Jupil, maybe, and I don't remember the name of the uncle, but where he says, basically, you're no longer Indian. You came to this country, and as soon as you get here, you become white like you're you're more of an american than an indian and the guy's like well that's what's wrong i live in america what's wrong with being american mm-hmm. and i think the idea of especially the the idea of the oppression and being forced out of uganda and jay's association with that with you know with the dark skin tone with black people i think it's um i don't know i just I, to your point i don't think it works if it's a white lead so definitely yeah. not as powerful of a movie no not at all um the only and because there's so much racism towards Mina in the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. inner inner Hindi racism, I don't yes. know how she would even say right. it, with the other women that are present in that community, like, well, she's too dark skinned. Like you want mm-hmm. a light skinned Indian woman to be your bride, not not some dark skin like her. Her dark skin shows that she's poor and low class. And it's just very I mean, obviously ridiculous, but like really kind of powerful to see that thing, those things, because you don't think about as much racism within a community or within a um, an individual race. And I think it's pretty bold of, of Nair to, to put it on display, especially in 1991 to make this movie. So, And that that is an extremely impressive thing about this is it being 1981. The other thing that's interesting about Mina is she doesn't only have her skin tone against her. She also has the idea that she's much more Americanized than many others in her community. And that seems to be held against her as well. And almost the ultimate stamp of how Americanized she is, is this relationship she ends up being in with Demetrius. And that's a theme that you know we'll be talking a little bit more about that in a few, couple of weeks but um it, it does seem to me certainly something that nair is uh certainly well aware of herself as someone who spans both cultures kind of and i think that's really interesting to to, to see in a film the last thing the very last thing i have to say about this is there's sex scenes in this movie that didn't offend me 
<laughs> like didn't think I didn't think it was too much. I thought it was just right. And I'm always like impressed when I see those scenes because I think so often sex scenes are either funny in terms of like how overdone they are or are too gratuitous for the film that they're in. And I think it strikes just the right balance in terms of like the love scenes in this. The last time I said that was out of sight about five or six months ago that I thought worked really well in the movie. But um, I, I tend not to see those things work inside the movie, but uh, I thought these worked really well uh, in terms of establishing like, you know, the, the connection between those characters and that relationship and certainly how like, you know, the stuff in the next morning and everything like worked in the plot of it. But yeah, I this is this is my favorite movie on this list. No one knows this at this point, but Chris is trying to work up to making me angry, but it's not working. He's he's setting the palette to make me angry in some way. Actually, actually, no, that that's in my notes right here. Like it had, and and you you ordered the way that we were going to talk about these earlier. So it, it maybe one you mm. did this to yourself. Okay, two, it could be that you're seeing things that aren't there because you haven't had a fucking cigarette. Um, and you're getting a little testy. So I'm not getting, getting a little testy. testy. <laughs> Chris, is, Chris is a prude. We're about to hear it in about nine minutes, I would say. I'm going to set a timer. Uh, you're going to set a timer for nine minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm just, I'm just going to start my stopwatch, and we'll see when, when you turn into a prude. Okay, that's fine. Um I mean, I think nine minutes is a little long because considering the plot of the upcoming movie, it's only going to take about one minute for you to get through it. So the next movie you want to talk about on this list, see, you're turning me against this movie and I don't dislike this movie, Frank. I, I don't, but you think I do because you make assumptions. Prude and a Philistine. So let's go. <laughs> the next movie that we're going to talk about tonight is The Double Life of Veronique. It is directed by Krzysztof Kieslowski. It stars Irene Jacob and Philippe Volter. It has an 83% from critics and a 92% from audiences. You want to go ahead and tell us? And I'm really interested to actually hear you describe the plot of this because uh, it might lead me to some reason why you like it. So can you describe... What goes on in this movie and um, why you have them list? So Irene Jacob plays two roles, a Polish woman named Veronica and a French woman named Veronique. Um, the movie starts in Poland where Veronica is in love with her boyfriend and kind of has this aspiring singing career where she's noticed by a local choir um, master, I guess I can't think of what to call it. Uh, choral director, hesitant about her relationship with her boyfriend, hesitant about becoming a singer. She nevertheless takes this role. Um, starts to realize that she's having heart palpitations during moments of excitement, uh, but continues on. And in the moment where she's performing this solo of um i don't know it's not an opera but whatever this piece her heart gives out and she dies so at one point during her day the day that she close to the day that she dies she's walking across a plaza where she sees a group of french tourists who are photographing and witnessing this descent that's happening in poland 
while she's walking, she manages to glimpse herself, basically, getting on this bus and taking pictures and driving away. Um, and it sort of unnerves her a little bit. Um, but to, I guess to see her doppelganger, but she continues on and then again passes away. So then the movie moves over to Veronique, who, young girl living in France with her father and there's some connection there because there's the father veronica's father and her father and they're sort of just sort of similar in the sense they both dote on their daughters but dissimilar in the sense that um veronique's father is seemingly wealthy or at least well off uh, he's a perf- perfumist i guess i don't know mm-hmm. what the word for that is um but somehow has, has made a relatively decent amount of money doing this thing she is not as driven as Veronica, but I don't know what the plot Perfumist is. is the correct word, though, so. Okay. Or perfumer, one of the two. Yeah. So she sent this tape in the mail that has a series of sounds on it and is sort of driven to detect where to go to meet the person that sent her this this tape so she eventually through listening to it sounds of a train station and then sounds of a people talking and doing certain things and she manages to track it to this one rail terminal where she meets a man who is a children's book illustrator of a book that veronica had seen and that she's also seen and he's doing it because he's trying to figure out, he wants to write an adult novel and he's trying to figure out if women can be psychologically manipulated by sounds basically, or like driven to emotional states by sounds. So she becomes upset and she runs away, hides from him, but he eventually finds her and they become lovers. And on the first night where they're kind of consummating their relationship, she empties well i guess it's not on the first night but they're consummating they're intimate together no they haven't been intimate yet so this is the first night they're together she empties her purse and he starts looking through the things in her purse and finds some small things then does some prestidigitation with a ball and then finds a series of proofs of these pictures that she took when she was in poland and sees the picture of her and when she sees he's just asking like who took this picture of you and in this coat and she realizes that it's not her that it's a different person and that causes her to sort of freak out but then they i don't i hate to say make love but they don't really have sex like they basically just like screw i guess and then i don't want to say that it fixes her but it kind of like calms the situation then See, it's more than a more than a minute. So basically, anyway, this is all nonsense. There's a lot of myth in like Germanic countries, um, Eastern European countries about the idea of the doppelganger, right? Like that's where it comes from. And that basically like meeting your double can lead to you dying and them assuming your life. So Veronica, who's 
really more full of life than Veronique sort of passes her life along and her passion for it into this other woman. And then she takes it and almost throws it away by like leaving this man, but then finally stays with him. This guy who's this artist and this marionette creator. And he creates these marionettes of her. And she, I think realizes the importance of living her life as she needs, you know, like more fully than she has been instead of being kind of a flake, which is how I think Veronique is portrayed in the beginning of like her segment but with more determination and maturity. So there's not a whole lot of like substance to the plot of this movie, but this is what I would say. And this is going to be, I'm going to let you tear it apart as much as you want, but let me make this point first before you do. Mm -hmm. We watch stuff like David Lynch movies all the time. And Mm -hmm. myself and you, and most of our friends, we love those movies and they can be just as, dense and abstract as this movie is at times right but i think that we love those movies because there's something really fascinating about the unknown menace of darkness right and that's what lynch is really good at is showing you and we've said this like a dozen times on the podcast like the the quiet menace of like small places or just like abandoned places right Krasluski is showing you the opposite of that, which is the beautiful mysteriousness of love and how there's just as many things that are unknowable or whimsical or mysterious or even borderline mystical in the world that are not bad things, that are good things, that are things that have beauty. And he films this movie like, the autumnal colors in this movie are amazing and the way that he films not only interior scenes but the sky where the sky just becomes a wash of like no color almost that people are silhouetted against and performing against almost like the marionettes at the end of the movie where they're living out their lives against just almost no depth of field in some of these shots and the sumptuous colors with the interiors like there's a scene where she's um she's walking through the auditorium i guess is what you would call it i don't know the the Mm -hmm. place where the kids are playing music or whatever yeah and everything is bathed in a soft like brownish light Mm -hmm. except for the beautiful like bright red of this woman's blouse And then it's sort of mirrored in another scene where she's similar, like it's all pale yellow lights, except for all these leaves and flowers that are on the clothes that she's wearing. So there's a comment maybe about two thirds of the way through the movie where she's talking to her father. She goes to visit her father at his house. He's let her smell like the scent and she's unimpressed with the scent. And fuck i meant to write this line down and i thought i could remember it but do you remember this line about autumn he says he says this is not a late autumn smell this is an early autumn smell Mm -hmm. and 
I think that's the whole, I don't quite, I can't quite make the connection that I want to make, but I think that's the feeling that you're supposed to have. It's not the dying of the light, but still the warmth of summer behind it. And that's Veronique's life. Like she's not at the end of that. She's at the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. And and she's trying to figure herself out still. Like, I, I, right. I, I, yeah. Like, I mean, this is a, this is a young woman, like, you know, who's just, I'm the supernatural aspect. I don't. How did you describe it? How do you see the connection between Veronica and Veronique? Like, I think that I think that they're doppelgangers. They're because there's the line at the end of the movie where, um, when Alexander is making the mm-hmm. Ver- Veronique puppet, where he yeah. says there were two girls born on the same day on different continents. Right that lived the same i can't remember exactly what the the sentence yeah, yeah, is yeah but it basically implies that for one to live the other one has to die and i that's sort of the myth of the doppelganger is that you know when you see your doppelganger it's um fucking that boring part of a uh, spirits of the dead the one right. with um mm-hmm. Brigitte Bardot or whatever where mm-hmm. it's um William Williams or whatever the fuck it's called. Right. Where when you meet your doppelganger, that's like the first sign that you're going to die. And yes, right. It's Veronica that sees Veronique. Veronique never sees Veronica. Right. And when she does see her, she's basically seeing a ghost because she's seeing a picture of someone that's now deceased. And I just think that it's and that's that's for her first sexual encounter too at that sure sure like for having sex for the first time with this man that she believes that she's in love with through his art and his his whatever his words and his fucking magic balls but um (laughs) i don't know i think that that's the whole point i think it's about the metamorphosis from being a child into an adult and how veronica never you never see veronica as a child you just always see veronica as a sexually active mature person and you get to watch veronique kind of metamorphosize into that in a Mm -hmm. way and again i think that's part of the whole autumnal feel of it is the idea of the the change of season of the you know the change of color of the leaves and the fact that it's the definitive sign of the death of one year and the birth of another but it's it's early autumn still it's not late autumn yet so yeah. No. I, and again, I, I I watch it from like the perspective of how I how I watch Lynch. It just it gives you a different feeling. It's like there's a scene where she's laying on her bed and the light is hitting the lace curtains of her room and moving like slowly along her body as the light moves, and you just get to see like these intricate little cutouts of the lace like moving up her arm and down her back and across her face and it's almost like a reverie kind of like when you're watching it because it's very quiet and then the phone rings and she turns on a light and it immediately shatters that illusion and it's just Krasuski's filming is I don't know in my opinion almost like peerless in the way that he films this movie and just how beautiful like almost every single scene Jesus, there's that scene where she's walking down the stairs out of the train terminal to go find the cafe, 
and just the shadows inside the terminal and the way the light perfectly casts against the steps and watching her slowly descend into light out into the street because that's the beginning of her her journey of discovery kind of of that thing like where she's found this mystery and she's captivated and it's just it's it's amazing like it's so beautiful and i don't mind it not having like a really firm or relatable plot because i think it's just worth watching just to see it like i think it's i don't know i like it better than red to be honest with you i think it might be my favorite movie of his mm. um I disagree with that. I mean, uh, a lot of what you say, I, I see where you're coming from. I agree with it. I, I think in terms of the filmmaking aspect of it, like I absolutely agree with you. I think he's an excellent filmmaker. And I think the color choices, just like you see in his three colors trilogy is, is a thing of beauty in terms of his color usage. I think this might be better than those even in terms of his color usage. Um, I agree. I don't know if the color usage always fits, but um, but it's or I or I'm just not smart enough to understand some of it. But so I really liked aspects of this movie. Like I like the supernatural aspect that kind of underlies the entirety of this movie. And I mean, I've only seen red and blue. I never saw white. So it's like I've seen red and blue. <clears throat> they have hints of fate and coincidence and whatever like um i don't know like a chance yeah yeah yeah. there you go um that happened in those movies as well and but they're still grounded in a reality where this feels less grounded in a reality to me then like at times it feels like it's grounded in reality and at other times it doesn't feel like it's grounded in reality it always feels like the end of that movie is still grounded in reality even though there's these coincidental fateful you know serendipitous things that are happening like and i feel like there's still a message to take away from them i think my problem with this much more so than you preempting me with Lynch is much more apropos to my complaints about this movie, which are minor, <laughs> but, but that's much more apropos than my other like smaller complaint about this movie. And my large thing is, I don't think Kislowski understands what this movie's about necessarily it's 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 a little what, what is it Aesop says like leaving a bunch of little question marks or something like that like you know it's like I feel like he's confused about what the double means in this movie exactly and what the repercussions of that are or what the consequences exactly of that are so it's like he's injecting a double and the double like having such a rich rich literary history is used in a number of very specific ways and in this it seems to maybe possibly spark a change in the one that doesn't die but what that change is other than like what is i just don't understand what it's trying to say and look Whoa. it leads to very interesting discussions just like lynch does do not get me wrong but at lynch i feel like i can get to some degree i can i can 
I can gleam the cube of what Lynch is trying to get at or where his mind might be a little bit. This movie, I don't think his Lossky really knows. Is it that like you you should abandon vocational passion for romantic passion? Like romantic passion doesn't solve anything. In fact, he's given her a series of tests in some ways to like, you know, so that's not going to solve her her worldview so it's like now we're does it's like if the if the if the double is a stand-in for the unlived life then what does she need to go to a psychotherapist do some shadow work like i mean like what 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 is this Uh, what is the meaning of this movie so what is what is the double stand for veronica is a person that lives her life but has a shortened life because of a genetic defect right like because she she dies mm-hmm. in the prime of her youth veronique is a person that doesn't have this defect but also isn't living her life so there's this this moment of crisis where veronique's eyes are open to the realities of the world by watching this revolution happen in front of her and it's that moment where veronique is fascinated by the revolution that she sees it's like sparking this newfound life in her that veronica passes her life to her unbeknownst to either one of them basically by that chance circumstance in you know wherever that the fuck it is poland when veronica sees veronique and Veronica dying is the thing that gives Veronique, who has the healthy body, the ability to live. I mean, there's, again, there's like, if you read German and Eastern European myth, that's that's a thing, is like the sickly, the changeling almost, right? Like, it's the same idea in, in that movie, kind of, of the sickly, the sickly child that's sacrificed so the healthy child can live. But Krasowski doesn't do it in a way that's gothic or dour or macabre you know he's doing it in a way that's a celebration of of life and passion and energy and again the passing of one thing to another and i think that i think there's a lot of symbolism in this movie that's both overt and subtle i think that there's a lot of beauty in this movie where you're just kind of telling this fairy tale but in a modern well, modern at the time setting with modern actors and modern ideas. And I think Krzyzewski is like most European directors. He's in tune with the idea that burgeoning sexuality is a display and part of, you know, the change from child to to adult, you know, from girl to woman or boy to man. And it's kind of creepy in the way that, alexander does it but at the same time i think it's that serendipitousness that connects it back to the stuff at the beginning with veronica you know it's the the music that's in common it's the the marionettes the book like all these things where they share the same life which hence is the double life of her and the passing of that life from the person that can't live it to the person that can and the person that can realizing what it means to actually be alive you know and ultimately Uh knowing that it returns to her family and it returns to the love for her father and it's not just about like this dude like fucking her 
it's about like her embracing everything that her you know that she stands for and that she she is well at least you have a coherent fucking explanation on like all the critics that like give this four or five stars and sit there and say you just got to feel it rather than like think through it logically like um at least that's a coherent explanation that they couldn't give i'll, I'll give you that like um yeah and to you your point to feel to, it too. To, well i'm i'm sure there's always a part of feeling with film even if there's a logical explanation to the philosophy or meaning of a movie i mean like uh, sure i mean but um but they can't even explain this shit like in their positive reviews um (laughs) so you just you just beat fucking ebert you know like there you go um (laughs) Uh, frank one ebert whatever (laughs) um and to your point about the burgeoning womanhood dude I, I understand that it's European. Like, I get that. But, like, if someone didn't know the term male gaze and you, like, showed them this movie, they would say, like, oh, yeah, I get it. I see what you mean. Like, there, this lingers far too much. Far too much, Frank. Come on. Like, it's like, you know, four, it's like five minutes in the whole movie. Frank. Of actual nudity. No, no, oh, no. Yeah. I'm not talking about the nudity. I'm not just talking about the nudity, Frank. There is a lot in this movie that, like, would constant. Come on, like, if you don't see it, then like you're being obstinate for a reason. You're a prude. <laughs> Twenty-three and a half minutes until you became a prude. <laughs> um, you, you, you have this. People in this country have this puritanical idea that somehow showing nudity or celebrating the beauty of people not just women but like men too is i don't know like somehow obscene or pornographic or something to be whatever i mean he's not exploiting irene jacob here she's a beautiful woman and and she represents youth and beauty i mean that's the whole point of it pretty naked i think movie if i'm not mistaken maybe three times i guess one says veronica and then well, I, didn't, says I didn't even count honestly like i because it's not just about the nudity necess- don't be a fucking don't 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 be a child man like that's the whole point of it's celebrating her beauty it's part of that movie it's okay. she's the central focus of most of the scenes in this movie and he's going he well he should film her like ugly he should like not he should be shy and turn the camera away like fucking ridiculous like that that's that's some woke ass shit that doesn't even belong in in cinema like when you have especially in the fucking from the 60s up through the 90s like that's that's just the that's direction that's how people film mm-hmm. beauty and like go back and look at contempt or i don't know any movie with like Brigitte Bardot or Claudia Cardinale or like any of those women from the 60s and 70s, that's how they were filmed. Mm-hmm. And that's not the cigarette making me testy. That's you, Cotton Mather, making me testy. <laughs> well, that's a new one. <clears throat> Never been called Cotton Mather before. That was the first pilgrim or whatever I could think of. <laughs> 
<laughs> is there another John Smith? I guess it's the other one. Like yeah, John Smith. It's, it's Family Feud. What's the next one? Can you think of another one? <sighs> Sacagawea. What was she doing? She wasn't a pilgrim, but she was there, right? She she was there. <laughs> yes, that's correct. All right. So I really can't think of a new who's. I don't know. Virginia Dare, right? Virginia Dare's the. Fuck, I don't know. The Croatan bitch, isn't she? Was John Bunyan just wrote about pilgrims, right? Like he didn't actually like he wasn't a pilgrim, was he? Paul Bunyan? He was just chopping down trees (laughs) with his with his big blue ox. I don't know. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Like, um, is that about like the? American pilgrims, or is that about like religious pilgrims? I can't remember, Frank. I I had to like fucking work my way through that bitch fucking twenty years ago almost now. Um, I think I just had to read excerpts from it. Um, I couldn't. I can't think of another thing to call you, Eli Whitney. I don't know what the fuck he was probably. <laughs> <laughs> he see because he 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 created the cotton gin, right? And I'm like so such a drunk that's... white person <laughs> no 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 because cotton mather was the last thing i thought of so that's my word association oh uh, um yeah he was yeah pilgrim's rise has nothing to do with um pilgrims. Pilgrims. yes yeah um it's where the term probably was roughly it's like the use of the word pilgrim and that is where the term pilgrims came for us like <laughs> The only reason I know this is because of the Elder Scrolls series. I just want you to know. So <laughs> there ain't no like kind of like actual education here. Just re- re- reading a lot of books in fucking Morrowind. There's 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 no education anywhere in the, in the last like two minutes, like of what we've been saying at all. So, uh, oh, you knew Cotton Mather. Uh, I did. Education. I did. Uh, all right so the second uh to last movie on our list here is emu zhang's raise the red lantern it stars gong li mao jingwu and saifei he it has a 96 percent from critics on Rotten tomatoes and a 94 percent from audiences do you want to tell us a little bit about this probably like the least known movie maybe on this list i would say and uh why it's on here so to me both beautiful and devastating at the same time um this is gong lee following up a similar performance in judo which we talked about last year right for yes. 90 yep. movies mm-hmm. similar in tone in the sense that um gong lee plays and i'm not going to remember her name uh fourth fourth mistress i'll call her She's a 19-year-old who's forced to leave college because her father dies. And obviously, in her stepmother doesn't want her around, so she basically sells her off to be the wife to this successful businessman who lives away from her hometown. So she has to join this family. Uh, she's met with distrust and suspicion by a couple of the other wives of this man. So he has four wives, and she's the fourth uh again they're called the mistresses so she's the fourth mistress also by her assigned maid servant who is also in love with the master and has had conjugal relations with him several times and is obsessed with the idea that she should have become the fourth mistress 
even though she's of low breeding and is a, a servant basically in the house. So you follow over the course of several seasons, I guess one and a half years maybe is the total time because she goes from 19 right, yeah. to 20 to the end of her 20th year by the end of the movie where she's dealing with the political machinations and backstabbing and maneuvering of living in this very small setting, which is this man's manor house in China. Um, so you get to see her build friendships with the second wife, who then turns out to be kind of a snake. And she has an, an, an antagonistic relationship with the third wife. But then the third wife turns out to actually be more of an ally to her. Um, she pretends to be pregnant in order to gain favor over the other wives, but is found out to not be pregnant because her maidservant tells the second wife that she's not. Um, so she is basically banished from being able to be fucked by, by the man of the house. Mm -hmm. One of the most fascinating things about this movie, one of the things that I, I love about this movie so much is you never get a clear picture of who this man is like this man is basically almost an object in the movie even though he has a role and he's basically forcing every moment to to happen like every moment to his crisis or whatever to fucking quote proof again um he's not really a character he's just kind of a a force that happens along in the movie and it's a really bold look at, I guess, Chinese culture from that time. And they call it the warlord era, I guess, in China. But where these women wear ornaments or property and they have no rights and they have no ability to do anything. But even within that, that small sphere, they manage to exert their influence over each other. And basically destroy each other in some cases on purpose and in some cases accidentally so there's two things that happen in this movie that are really kind of the whole movie in itself has a very dour and sort of depressing air to it even though it's very lightly filmed and beautifully photographed and the colors in the movie are amazing and the cinematography is just gorgeous there's Yawen, I guess is how you say her name, right? Who's the maidservant um, to Fourth Mistress. And after it's found out that Fourth Mistress is not pregnant, she decides to expose Yawen's love for the master by... Um, the, the name of the movie, Raise the Red Lantern, comes from the practice of the master picks the woman he's going to sleep with for the night, and Red Lanterns are raised in front of her house to signify this is where master is having sex tonight, basically. So this thing that's always described as old tradition, or it's just tradition of the family, or this is just tradition, which really just this disgusting practice of pitting these women against each other for the almost like non-existent, whatever it's this, um, fearic victory, right. Of being the, the people that get the, the woman that gets to raise the red lantern for the night. Um, and that's almost what fourth mistress is is fighting against is the idea that I married this man. I shouldn't have to fight for that right to get foot massages and eat what I want and whatever, just because he decides that he wants to sleep with somebody else that night. So 
she ends up forcing Yawen to kneel in the snow in front of these lanterns that she's created that get burned and Yawen stands up for herself in a way of like kneeling in the snow and never comes in and ends up dying from her um, exposure and exhaustion I guess is what you would say that she eventually died from and then later in a drunken drunken state uh, fourth mistress reveals that she knows the third mistress is having an affair with um, the local doctor that comes to check on them and basically service the people in the house and it ends up leading to her death by hanging and that breaks fourth mistress's mind and sort of causes her to go crazy and regress to a more childlike state um but it's really uh, it's interesting because you're talking about 1991 in china so very heavy on censorship very heavy on that idea still of the the red red curtain or whatever you want to call it it's kind of like hiding any imperfect imperfections in china and it passed the censor board like they let it get made but then yeah. they wouldn't show it in china for a long time after um so i mean we're only two mo- two years right that was 89 right like a yeah. square like right yeah so pretty crazy that this movie could have gotten made and crazy that it could have gotten released but gong lee is somebody who i think really deserves more i think that people know who gong lee is i would assume i don't know maybe not um but really somebody that deserves a lot of mainstream recognition and credit just for how great of an actress she is and between this and judo i think that she's those are two amazing performances of a woman basically empowering herself trying to empower herself through her sexuality and in the end tradition just kind of like crushing that and it really is a condemnation i think of number one you know the the idea that women are far more in are far inferior to men in that part of chinese culture um but also that women are so disposable that they basically have to whore themselves and destroy each other in order to gain just a small amount of recognition and praise from from this man and i think that fourth mistress understands how ridiculous and empty that entire process is and does everything she can to sort of fight against it right and you really see that he has no agency there. Like he has no real power over her in the long run, except until he decides that he's going to murder one of them because he's justified in doing it. And then he has all the power. So um, really complex. There's a lot of, again, it's beautifully filmed following the complex through the different seasons and watching sort of the ebb and tide of the, relationships between the women um in the in the manor house it's just there's it's a fascinating movie it's a glimpse into a culture that i think that we know far too little about outside of um kind of rumor and just uh, stereotypes that you see um yeah just really powerful very very beautiful film yeah it's um the symmetry I see. I saw a couple of people criticize him for being like, I think it was, uh, I think it was Washington Post. Um, what's his name? Henson. Um, the reviewer talked about like how he's almost like it's like 
too well crafted which is a dumb complaint like but um he was i remember him talking about how it's like he's like a painter as opposed to like a filmmaker or something like that and how there's like almost like too much symmetry at times but i I think that's a dumb complaint and i i love like the way that he frames scenes in this to where it is like a painting and you still think see everything playing out and like the coloring of those paintings like if you just take it frame by frame is a thing of beauty and yeah this is uh, and there was hints of this in judo like when we talked about it like a year ago but this is like fully realized now at this point i think where like he's really found he's really found like who he is as a director and i think you know i've only seen i think one other film of his uh in the 2000s but like i can definitely see the stylistic like nature of that's house of flying daggers right that he did i believe so yeah like uh, i never saw hero but i'm pretty sure he did did that too but like you can certainly see the style like even though that's much more action oriented you can certainly see that stylistic kind of like painterly nature of like the frame by frame filming starting to form here and to be told in such i think like a personal story with i can't remember i mean their fourth mistress and her tale and is yeah it's something that really makes it a work of art and i i thought this was a beautiful movie to watch as horrific as the plot was and yeah i think this is probably out of the three movies i've seen now this is probably my favorite movie of his i thought it was really good so it's interesting and maybe we'll do this next year spoiler alert with 92 mm-hmm. but um he also did the story of Huizhu, which has gong Li in it as well Oh, okay. And is also a pretty goddamn amazing movie. Hmm. Um, so those are, I've never seen Red Sorghum, which is his first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but to do Judo, Razor Red Lantern, and Story of Quiju in three consecutive years. Yeah. Well, is, is Farewell My Concubine good? Because I've always heard good things about that. Yeah, that's a really good movie. Because that's, that's um, three, I think. That's just her, though, right? That's not him. I don't think he directs that movie. Oh, he doesn't direct that. Mm-mm. Oh, okay. No, she's she's in that, and that is oh, a really good movie. Okay, too. gotcha. So we we may end up talking about that in a couple of years, but yeah, um, Hero is fine. I guess I I like Hero well enough. House of Flying Daggers, I like. Um, I never saw his Under the Hawthorn Tree. That's interesting. I wonder if that's uh, who was that? Thomas Hardy that wrote that. Is that right? Mm. I don't know. Oh, no, never mind. I should. That's like under the Greenwood tree. Okay. Um, I've never seen any of his other stuff, I don't think. It's hard to tell because I watch all these fucking Asian language um, historical epics like on Saturday and Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I'll try and find on Saturday and Sunday mornings and watch them. And um, 
I don't ever remember what the fuck they're called. And then like I'll start one, and it's like, oh right, like I watched this three years ago, and then I just feel dumb. All right. So. Raise Red Lantern though is an amazing movie, and again, I think that there's, I I, I think it's a really under underexplored part of the world is knowing about Chinese culture and knowing about sort of like that deeper history of China that maybe we've kind of lost because in our lifetime, it's always just been a communist state. Um, so right. seeing these movies is, is kind of eye-opening and really sad and beautiful at the same time. And, you know, definitely a movie worth watching. Yeah. Another one that's like free. It's on, uh, on Prime YouTube. right now. Yep. No, it's on Prime yeah. right now. Is it on Prime? Mm-hmm. And just so you know, next year, 1992, is going to be a fascinating year because there's so many movies we've already talked about. Like, I think your whole list is going to be movies we've talked about, possibly, um, with the exception of one, maybe, but because that's a weird fucking year. So, yeah, that movie well, probably will make the list at this point. <laughs> or I'm going to surprise you. Oh, shit. By putting a bunch of stuff that you've never seen on there just to get y'all excited. Mm. There's one, a couple things I wouldn't mind watching again, but... All right, so the last movie we're going to talk about tonight in your top five is Defending Your Life, directed and starring Albert Brooks, also starring Meryl Streep, Rip Torn, Lee Grant, and Buck Henry. It has a 97% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 83% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you love Albert Brooks so much? So let's by saying, let's start by saying funny story. This is a movie I forgot I had put on the list. <laughs> Um, and one of my favorite movies of the 1990s in general, uh, and we'll talk about why, but pretty crazy that I was sitting there, I was like, man, I wish I'd put Defending Your Life on the list. I'd so much rather talk about that than La Belle Noisu. There's really nothing to say about La Belle Noisu beyond what I said about it. Right. Um, so anyway. And I didn't have to sit through a four-hour movie, so. Oh my God. If I would have thought win, about win. it, though, that would have been a four-hour movie with a woman being 100% naked almost. You would have um your head. Well, would have no, exploded. You, you know what? Let's not talk about the same movie. But I don't think I would have mind the way you explained the way it was dealt with. I wouldn't have minded it properly. It's true. I was being a smartass. Okay. It, it just eventually again just becomes part of the scenery, sort of. Right. Feels um, like so, a point to it. Yeah. Right. That is the point. So let's talk about defending your life. Uh, romantic comedy, I would call it romantic black comedy almost maybe but yeah, it's black, a rom-com at its core black comedy with like a very slight hint of darkness it's more light mm-hmm. than dark uh albert brooks is a middling successful advertising executive who on his birthday buys a brand new bmw um and his co-workers gift him a cd player with cds and remember this is 91 so that would have been an expensive gift um, as he's driving away from the dealership in his BMW with the stated purpose of I'm just going to go and drive and be by myself for a few days, he gets in an accident where he runs into a bus and he's killed. So upon awaking from dying, he finds that he's in this and they never really force this into any specific religion. Like it's always very 
delicate in the way that it describes it but he finds himself in what you would call almost like a purgatory type place called judgment city where the dead come to have their lives judged and either get sent along into the universe to grow and expand and continue or get pushed back to earth to get born again so they can learn to live without fear Uh, so that's the basic premise of the movie is you're judged on how you've lived uh, either fearfully or fearlessly and whether or not your soul is mature enough basically to move and i don't use the term soul but your spirit your essence is mature enough to move on into the um whatever the universe the ether so brooks eventually meets and falls in love with the meryl streep character uh who's a person who's full of light and fun and energy and she brings out this sardonic but still friendly sense of humor in him and um her defense is going really well because she's lived this like bold powerful life and he's lived a life where he's shrunk away from things and shown fear and shown indecision and made poor decisions because he was afraid and at the end on their last day when she's been told that she's going to basically move on the next day she offers for them to go to bed together and he declines because he's afraid of what might happen and he's afraid of being judged and not being able to move on and he tries to hide it behind this idea that maybe she would judge him but ultimately it's because he's just afraid of taking that chance so he's decided to get sent back to earth and she's decided to get moved on and in one of my favorite scenes of any movie in the 1990s he gets off of there's the setting itself is amazing so it's basically just florida um with trolley or maybe vegas is a better way to say it with these trolley cars in florida though it's almost like a nightclub feel inside of an old folks home like yeah so he breaks out of this tram that he's on that's taking him to get born again and chases her tram down and he's almost hit by a bunch of other trams and the electricity from them is sparking and hurting him but he still pushes through (laughs) and then it's revealed that uh he in doing so has proven himself to be brave to be fearless and is allowed to move on with her uh so one of the one of the sweeter nicer endings of a movie of anything we usually talk about um i i am a huge fan of albert brooks in the sense of just i don't know just the humanity that exists in him i guess Mm -hmm. i'm not a huge fan of meryl streep but i love her in this movie i do too i think rip torn is fantastic in this movie he plays the um, public defender almost that's taken on um, Dave or Dan Dan I guess is his name Daniel right whatever um, the Brooks character's case yeah Dan- Daniel yeah. Yeah. it's it's a funny movie it's a really clever movie mm-hmm. it's sweet without ever being saccharine it's thoughtful without being overbearingly religious or weirdly mystical like it's got just the right balance it's like 
Well, in fact, that I mean, should... they, they talk about reincarnation in it. So it's not just purely like a Christian kind of purgatory right. necessarily. I mean, the, one of the funniest things is uh, Shirley MacLaine being the holograph. Right. That is if I... <laughs> because she's such a believer in reincarnation and stuff like that from that book she was putting out around that time. But yeah. Yeah. And the, she used to be on a show or something, right? Like where she talked about getting reincarnated. It was one um, of those late night things, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah, her and her and Dion Warwick were the, mm-hmm. yeah. the psychic and the whatever. Right. Um, but just really a very refreshingly enjoyable comedy that doesn't try and beat you over the head. Has a lot of really funny, smart ideas in it without being pretentious or again cloying or overbearing like it's just it's it's easy to watch you feel good for the characters you want them to fall in love you want their them to be successful you want him to grow and stop being so full of self-loathing and self-doubt and shame and whatever and it's it's he does it in a way where he's not like nebbish in the way that woody allen is in that role Mm -hmm. like he still feels like a human being not a caricature so i don't know there's just to me there's a lot to love in this movie and i've seen it probably six or seven times in my life and i love it every single time i see it it's funny that like for a movie that really has no and again this goes back to the commitments almost where a movie with no death or overt nudity or super violence in it that i saw when i was you know 13 14 years old that i fell in love with and i've loved it pretty much my entire life since then so i can't recommend defending your life enough i think defending your life is one of it's definitely one of my 10 to 20 favorite comedies of all time and maybe one of my 50 to 100 favorite movies of all time yeah, I had never seen this before, Frank. I'm glad I saw it. I think it's beyond just the comedy aspects of it, and I agree with everything you said. It made me actually like Albert Brooks a lot more watching this movie. It, it's Honestly, it might be my favorite Meryl Streep role that's probably sacrilegious because I know the love that Meryl Streep has with a lot of people, but I've never been too impressed with Meryl Streep, but like uh, largely because... I don't find her likable in the role she's in often. I don't, it's like, it's all very Shakespearean acting and I don't feel like I actually know a character. I felt like I understood this character from her and I felt like that I I, I really enjoyed the character that she played. I was glad to see Rip Torn in a role where he's, still that gruff dude but he's a good guy and not like kind of like a half scumbag so let me ask you this question i think real quick i think it's fascinating that that the ending is something you enjoy so much because that is not what i would anticipate whatsoever i would have anticipated you would have said the endings maybe like a little sappy or something like that or a little too and i think that's awesome that like this is the ending that you like so much um because it's not what i would have ever expected yeah because i think that i i think that they're both such likable characters because again even though he's he's got that anxiety and he's got that um 
uncertainty to him like he's still like you can tell that he loves her like it feels like he loves her right and you want them to succeed so when they do succeed it's like yeah right like that's that's what should have happened here that's how i look at it so yeah. i mean i i think it's interesting because i i know that sometimes i don't always like um albert brooks and i think that when i don't like albert brooks is when other people try to direct him to be Woody Allen, basically. Right. Like they take him as the kind of whiny voiced Jewish character that they can have be uptight and nervous and neurotic. And I hate that stereotype. And I think that, I think the reason it works here is because I think. Well, I think you it's portrayed in a much more Brooks, realistic way. Right. Because Brooks is directing himself. He's sure. directing himself. Yeah. as a human being and not as a caricature or right. whatever a prop in some ways and he invests the same humanity in Meryl Streep like she's yeah. just a person that you feel like if you met her you would probably like her and want to talk to her right and not like a caricature not a you know she's not that's I mean, this is pre this but like manic pixie dream girl she's not Right. Some like virgin holy mother type thing. She's mm -hmm. got imperfections, mm -hmm. but she laughs and she's happy and they make good jokes together and their chemistry is amazing. And yes. I, don't know. Yeah, I just agreed. really love um really love everything about this movie. So yeah. I mean we we, we rank these after I made a comment on text earlier about Veronique, like, but yeah, I mean, we both agree that I think that this is the I this is to me the second best movie on this list. I was actually really shocked by how much I like this movie, and I was shocked that I'd never seen it. <laughs> yeah, there's I, there's things I'm not surprised that you liked it because I I really thought you would like it, but mm -hmm. I'm really surprised you had never seen it. When you told me that you hadn't seen some of these movies, I was almost positive this would be one of the ones that you had seen. It was I have I'd had to go through Albert Brooks' filmography. I have a feeling I Broadcast News is the movie that I most associate with Albert Brooks. And right. there must have been a thing when I saw this when I because I saw Broadcast News young, young, like eight, nine, like a year or two after it came out. I must have really disliked Albert Brooks' character in that movie because I have held this kind of like notion about Albert Brooks a lot of my life that like, eh, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. it's funny like, because he's i really liked him in this and i really like this movie and i'm kind of interested in seeing some of the other things he wrote and directed maybe like uh, you would because of this you would like the muse i think hmm. that's later yeah. in the 90s yeah i think it's interesting so again i think it's because in broadcast news for everything yeah. you like about albert brooks he still is just being yeah a tremendous dick who's trying to fuck up his friend's chance at happiness because he's so petulant that he can't have her sure like he sure. can't just let her be happy and he has sure. to be yeah such an asshole about it and it's it's a very off-putting performance at times yeah um even though it's a really great performance i mm -hmm. think so mm -hmm. uh, so just to finish up what i was saying about this is that 
I was, I mean, this movie is somewhat inspiring, I think, in the sense of like, it did really make me think as comedic as it was being about the entire thing is like, Jesus, why the fuck are we so damn fearful? (laughs) Yeah. Like we have like, you know, and it's like, maybe I'm feeling this way watching it because now I'm, I guess, technically middle-aged and I'm thinking like, right we don't have a lot of time on earth you know like i mean like and it's like we never know when the fuck it's gonna happen like it could happen tomorrow and the car drive or whatever and it's like jesus like how how much of your white life do you waste (laughs) worrying about stupid petty bullshit which we all do you know we get caught up in our own heads or caught up in societal expectations and like you know like all those kind of things but it's like yeah it's 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 definitely something that goes beyond just the rom-com the comedy all those kind of things it it definitely does make you question yourself other people all those things about like why we do the things we do and you know if we are actually like living our fullest lives and stuff like that so in that respect it's like it goes beyond the comedy to me to something that is much more grand and philosophical too i mean which i think makes it even more important like i'm definitely living my best life over here so just you don't have keep that in mind you don't have any cigarettes right now just um (laughs) maybe that's my best what you want no, you want them. That would be your yeah. best life, right? The thing you want is, is is living your best life, right? You don't know what um, I want. <laughs> do you real quick? Do you th- the good place has to be inspired by this movie in terms of the yeah, concept, right? I was going to make that point, and then we started talking about something else. But okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. The good place, but except that there's no hell in the universe, if, um, right? Or there is a hell, and there's so. S- smart the big brains that they don't want anyone to think about maybe the people that come to judgment city don't have a chance of going to hell so all right well there's reincarnation no there's reincarnation so right that's true oh right because los angeles is as close to hell as you guys can come (laughs) right that's the joke yes Um, uh, so yeah despite my critiques of double life i I enjoyed all the movies on this list. I thought they were all worthwhile again. Uh, The same thing plays through in 2001 as well. So there's there's no grand controversies um, coming up in the next couple of weeks. Although maybe that's what I should be doing is teasing something like that. It's like, oh, wait till you hear the. Yeah. Wait till you hear the sparks fly talking about movie number two in 2001. <laughs> I mean, there's a move, there's like fucking 10 movies that I think are better than one of the movies that you picked um, overall on that 2001 list. So, but I didn't dislike the movie that you picked. So, um, whatsoever. Oh, there I'm, really I'm, is. Like, I'm, I'm randomized. I'm, 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 I'm making a random number up with 10, but like, you know, I bet you there's plenty of movies I like in 2001 that are better than one of those movies, but <clears throat> um, I think they're better than one of those. There's 11 movies that are better than the movie that you're talking about, but there's a reason I want to talk about it. So, okay, cool. 
And is that the movie that we have a uh, a tag along podcast with? Uh, yeah, okay. exactly. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, so yeah, coming up in the rest of the year, I guess, is we will have a second watch with the friend of the podcast, Zeke Lawrence. And that'll be coming up here before Christmas. Uh, because of the Christmas holidays, we only we have like a bunch of Fridays in this month. So we will be doing the best movies of 2001, probably around Christmas week. And then we will have a supplemental podcast that has to do with Gen X actors sometime around that time as well. It's all up in the air right now, like in terms of the releases of these episodes. But basically, there's three episodes over the course of the next three weeks that will be released. And then we will move into January, which whatever, I might as well just announce we will be covering the top five films of Michelangelo Antonioni. The top five films by actors turned directors, and then we will be covering the top five horror films of 1970 as we start through Frank's list of every year of the 1970s horror. Yeah. Um, whatever. I'm fine with it so far. I guess I'm talking movies. I'm 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 not saying it because I want you to get fucked. I'm saying it because like I'm just excited. I know I'm making it about me. I get it. Um, I get you. But yeah, I'm two. I'm two <laughs> movies in. I'm two movies in that list, and I called you Cotton Mather. <laughs> uh, that's the highlight of the night for me. <laughs> we could. We'll talk about that off air at some point. But um, all of that we got. Um, we we we, we got to do something fast. I won't pee in my pants if we don't. So. Oh, is that what the hand movements are about? There's no, a lot I'm of hand just... movement. No, no, there was a lot of hand movement going on over there, and I didn't understand no, I'm just, it. But now I'm, I'm just jittery. Your answer, yeah, your answer, yeah. That's answery. Antsy. You said answery. That's like answery, but like, <laughs> but the other direction. All right. That's like you can't stop borrowing money. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people like that. Um. <laughs> All right. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Have a good uh, week, and we will be back uh, before the holidays. Yep. Deuces.